wonderful to have all of you here tonight. First of all, this is not a committee meeting, okay? You know what they say about committee meetings. You know, after all is said and done, usually more is said than done. That's <laughs> one of the things about committee meetings. So this isn't that. Um, <laughs> but uh, don't get me wrong, I don't say that talk is cheap. You know, anyone who thinks talk is cheap hasn't paid my daughter's phone bill. So it's <laughs> kind of how that works. So well, we're going to now turn it over to someone whose words are always worth a lot. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. Ornithopters. Tonight we're going to talk about ornithopters. If you're like I was, you're probably thinking, now which dinosaur is that? You know, <laughs> in the Jurassic period next to the Triceratop? No, it's not a dinosaur. But if it was a dinosaur, it would definitely be a flying dinosaur. Ornithopter, a lot like helicopter, right? Yeah, ornithopters are contraptions that use wings that flap up and down to fly. And so instead of like a helicopter where the wings spin, you could say, um, they're more like birds, aren't they? So I want to talk about a new type of ornithopter that some researchers have been working on. And this is an international effort with several countries, universities from several countries involved. And I'm going to start by showing you a little video so you can kind of see what it looks like. And if you uh, watch really carefully, you can see it there. It looks a lot like a little sparrow or a swallow or something flying around. Now it's coming down for a landing. Here it comes gracefully. The neat thing about this ornithopter isn't just that it has flapping wings, but that it is so agile. It can maneuver in amazing ways. It can take off by itself. It can hover. And it can move quite fast to the side and back and forth. So um, that's pretty amazing if you compare it to some of the earlier contraptions that people have made, where you have to give it a little throw, you know, and then the wings flap and everything. Um, so it's pretty cool. Let's take a closer look and see if we can kind of see what's going on here. And there's a little uh, wire frame that holds it together. And then you can see the wings on the top there. And there's a little motor on the nose that actually does the wing flapping. And if you look at the very bottom, you can see the tail. And they made a quite large tail compared to the rest of the aircraft. And that's part of their secret. You know, usually the way that birds fly, there's a really complex um, movement between the wings and the tail that make it so it can steer itself so well. And instead of doing something like that, they have the wings move in a very controlled pattern, and the tail does the, the movement. Let's take a closer look at the wings, because they actually have an X-style wing. And uh, if you watch this cycle, you can see how uh, the wings open and close, and they came up with a really neat way so they counterbalance each other. If you can imagine flying a bird or a more conventional-looking ornithopter, if those are conventional, <laughs> it would be kind of an up-and-down ride, you know, because the wings flap. Well, here, the movement of the wings makes it so it's a lot more steady because we have those opposing wings. And then if you look really carefully, you can see the hinge where those wings connect, and they have a spring that... 
uh, builds up as the wings spread out and then harvests that energy as the wings close. So it's much more efficient in the way that it flaps, open and closed, open and closed. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Uh, now, I'll bet by now you're asking, how can I get one? Uh, <laughs> but that's not what we're going to talk about. <laughs> the question is, why? Why would you want one? Because we already have, you know, little quadcopter drones that we fly around, and those are pretty great, aren't they? Well, let me tell you some of the benefits of an ornithopter like this. One big benefit is it's quieter. That's nice, isn't it? A bigger benefit is that it actually is more efficient, which means with the same amount of power, it should be able to stay up in the air longer. But not only is it more efficient at hovering, it's also more efficient at cruising than a quadcopter. Quadcopters are actually pretty inefficient when they start trying to cruise across land, you know, cross-country flight. And um, as opposed to a fixed-wing aircraft where the wings don't move, those are much more efficient cruising, but they can't hover. <laughs> At least not without a big modification that adds weight and makes it so they don't cruise as well. So um, this might be really useful for certain applications, but there's another really big advantage. You notice how those wings flap, but they're not near as fast as a propeller on an aircraft like a quadcopter, which means that it's quite a bit safer around people. I would much rather have this little uh, ornithopter crash into me than a drone that doesn't have, you know, the extra protection around the blades. And uh, the protection around the blades actually adds weight, and so a lot of times they don't have them, especially on the big scary ones that would really hurt. So maybe there's a l big future for these ornithopters. Let's watch one more video where they demonstrate how we can drop it from a high location. You can watch how it recovers. Okay, here it goes. Go down. See, there's the guy steering it down there. Graceful landing, right? Let's hope so. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so you can kind of see how uh, it flies, and you'll notice that uh, the guy's controlling it. It's actually probably a little bit tricky to fly. I haven't tried it. I want to. <laughs> but they're working right now on some automated systems to make the flying more automated and easier. And uh, once they have that figured out, then, you know, maybe this will be the next drone that you get. It's pretty cool. Maybe someday we'll all be able to fly around like the birds only for reals, not just, you know, <laughs> I mean, with flapping wings, right? <laughs> That's all the tech we have the time for. Thank you. <laughs> now it's time for Breakthroughs in Science with Tobias. So, have you ever taken a bath I hope so. <laughs> uh, smarty, I take showers. <laughs> no. Um, have you ever taken a bath and noticed some things sink and some things float? Uh, okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this got awkward fast. Um, <clears throat> the shampoo bottle, toys, or um, not that I bathe with toys. Okay. I have children. Okay. This is for the kids, so be quiet. Um, but the, the fact that some things sink, some things float, it's kind of a, you know, an obvious thing. Well, yeah, the heavy things sink and the light things float, but it's actually more complicated than that. And tonight we're going to be talking about 
the submarine, something that can go up to the top and down to the bottom. It can float and it can sink. Um, that's pretty amazing, actually, to be able to do that and to be able to control it. And we're going to go back to the 1800s when a gentleman named John Phillips Holland, who was living in Europe, growing up in Europe, and he started to get into science and engineering, and he had this, this big idea. And the idea was we could make a boat that, yeah, you could, you could be on the top of the water, but then you could go down. And I can imagine him trying to explain this to some of the, the people he was telling, you know, this, this idea. It's, so it's a boat that sinks. <laughs> yeah, we have those. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a boat that can come back up. Okay, well, so things sink or they float, right? You can't, like, have something that changed its mind and then all of a sudden it floats, right, after it sinks down to the bottom. And, you know, if, if you get in the water and you want to dive down, you swim down. You've got to use those arms and get down, and then you can float back up if you've still got any air in you. And that's kind of how it's done. You've got to swim down, then you can come back up. So what, some kind of contraption with arms that swims the boat down really hard, and then you've got to keep going, or else if you stop, you just go back up. Um, so he started thinking about this, got told by a lot of people that it was impossible, and he kind of put it on hold. Well, he eventually comes over to America, and slips on the ice in Boston. Yeah. Th that's part of the story, folks, right there. Uh, because he broke his leg, and he was in the hospital for three months. And he said that when he was in the hospital with nothing to do, um, that's why, he, you know, having no cell phones is a plus, I guess, right? <laughs> um, he got out this idea again. He said he started working on it some more. Of There's got to be a way to make this this ship that can go down and come back up so he starts envisioning some different designs and finally he actually gets some funding and after he gets out of the hospital starts putting together his first prototype and it was called the holland one okay and here's a picture of the holland one and that's like enough room for one guy um, and it was going to be him. Now, this was kind of a daring thing to do because other people had already had this idea and tried it. And people have even, had even died from trying this because, I mean, if you think about it, you're in this little case. You go out into the water. Okay, now I'm going to go down. If something goes wrong, you're at the bottom of a river or the ocean or whatever. Um, it can be very dangerous. And so, you know, there was a lot of risk involved. And he tried this in a river by New York. And they pushed out into the river. It was supposed to be kind of a top-secret trial, but all these people came to watch because they saw him doing it. But he got in, and it sank, and it did not float. So they had to pull it back out. They worked on it some more, and there were a lot of kinks he had to work out. He tried it again. Now, there's different things you have to think about. How are you going to make it go down? How are you going to make it come back up? You can't just think, sink, and then you sink. Or, or can you? Well, you have, I have... I have an experiment, okay? Yes, that is a ketchup bag. <laughs> no, Heinz did not sponsor this, although it is a Heinz ketchup. I just did this for free. You're welcome. Okay. As you can see, this obviously floats, okay? Now, I used ketchup, you know, to get attention because ketchup, everyone loves ketchup, right? So if I wanted to make this float, I can't just go or make it sink because it's already float. That's easy. Float. Um, I can't just go sink, 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 and ha it's going to sink down to the bottom, okay? Oh. 
Okay, yep. Some of you guys are like, I already saw this. Yeah, yes. That's why I should have used mustard. That would have thrown you off. But <laughs> what, what's happening? Well, I'm actually squeezing with my hand and applying pressure. And it's sinking. And I release the pressure. It comes back. Ketchup is so magical. Um, <laughs> what is going on, though? How is this happening? Um, that was the breakthrough, ketchup. Uh, no, but... It turns out it's all about the buoyancy and density of the object. And we go all the way back to Archimedes, who's the one who kind of first put this into a, a real principle. And they even call it sometimes the Archimedes law. And this is something that John Holland had to really think about and used to figure this out. And basically what it is is how, is, how do you know if something's going to float? Well, the, the volume that that object takes up, or the amount of water, if I put this rock in water, the amount of water that it would displace, okay, if I put the rock in, it needs to be, that object needs to be heavier or have more mass than the amount of water that it displaced. So it can't just be, oh, it's heavier than water. I mean, a lot of boats, they're heavier than water, but they displace more water, and uh, they displace a lot of water. So Let's, let's look at that in a more simplistic way, because I, I had another in case this one didn't work. <laughs> but it worked. Um, this one is more scientific, so we're going to put away the ketchup one. So this one actually has a glass tube inside of it, and there's an opening on the bottom. It's actually a, one of those droppers, okay? Now, what I'm going to do is let Titus get a tight shot, and if you look at the top of the glass thing, and I go like this, you see that little air bubble in there? So all I'm doing is squeezing, and it's pressurizing the air, and it's pushing water in, which is replacing where that air was. So I'm changing the density of this object because all of a sudden it's taking up the same amount of volume, but the weight is growing, increasing. Its density is increasing. Now if I keep squeezing, squeezing, I'm doing more and more water replacing the air, and it gets heavier. So the volume stayed the same, but the density changed, the mass changed, and that made it sink. So how do we do this in the submarine? You put water in to replace some of the air. Now other people had tried to do this before John, but they did it kind of in a huge tank going across the whole contraption, and when the, the ship would start to go down, they had no control, and it would tip one way and all the water would go one way and they'd lose control of it and it would even be deadly sometimes. He put it in special compartments, or ballasts as they would be called, that held the whole craft in balance as it would come down. So basically, they're full of air, it's floating. And then he lets open these valves on the top and water comes up into these tanks. And as it starts to come up, the density of the submarine increases and it starts to go down because now it's getting heavier than the water that it's displaced. And as it starts to go down, he can slow down the amount of water coming in. And you can actually go, you can like, this is so cool, you know. What if I want to go midway? Slow down. Whoa. You can actually go somewhere in the water depth and stay there because you're controlling it by the density of the craft. And so he used this system in his submarine. So second run, he gets in the water. He goes down. It floats. He goes down. And five minutes go by, and John is nowhere. And so 
the guys who came out and helped him started to think John's in his coffin. And eventually, about 400 yards down the river, he comes bubbling up back to the surface in the submarine. He opens it up. And this would become, obviously, a groundbreaking way to travel through water. And it would be used in so many different ways. Obviously, for military, it's used all over the place. It's used for a lot of exploration. And really, I mean, the ability to be able to control, this is a sinking ship. This is a floating ship. Broke through what so many people have tried to be before, all with this law of the density of objects and buoyancy. So just remember, you know, next time somebody says, you can't, it's impossible, you just go, listen. The ketchup can float, and it can sink. <laughs> and while they're lost and like, what? You just walk away. <laughs> and you do it. You do it. Thank you. All right. And now, introducing Roger Billings. I think the last bird was one of Johnny's. Like that you know, hesitation, drums. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Yeah. This fun. And look what, look what you Tobias have. inspired something that floats. Can you, can you see this well enough to see all these little floaters in here? Let's mess them up, shall we? There we go. I'm going to put this here and see if we can get a close shot. Submarines, can you see them? Oh, there's one floating. So this is called a Galileo thermometer. And all these little weights are in here with little glass balloons. And they're filled with different amounts of liquid of different mass. And they're perfectly balanced. This one on that's halfway up says it's 76 degrees. And if it floats in the middle, then that's the temperature of the room. So as the temperature goes up, the water in here expands, which makes it less dense, and so these floats take their turn going up and down, and we can tell what the temperature is in the room by this method. Looks like I've got one trapped there. There we go. Yeah. So we can get some to come down, some to go up. Pretty neat. So uh, the question is, uh, you know, some, some research has been requested regarding um, the existence of aliens from space. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> some of the students have wondered if I'm an alien they, or they if you're that. an alien. Mm -hmm. or, and so uh, aliens don't have the same warmth that uh, <laughs> humans have. And so if we were to have an alien take a hold of this thermometer, it wouldn't get warm, and, and the weights wouldn't change. You know this, huh? Would you like to try it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what you do is just put your hand right on there and just kind of hold it. Yeah, just grab a hold of it. Okay, now we have to wait so that any heat that might be in her hand no, can transfer <laughs> in here, and um, we'll see a difference. 
It'll actually make it warmer. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, those of you that are keeping lab notebooks, please write down that when she took a hold of it, nothing happened. <laughs> what does that mean? Hmm. That we can have a hypothesis about what that means, can't we? Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's try it with another person from planet Earth. Yeah, let's Ready? try it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look, it's not doing anything. It's got to have time for the human warmth <laughs> to go through the glass into the liquid, heat it up, and cause things to happen. Now, I have a question for you. If I'm warmer than that, and uh -huh. if this gets warmer, then is that one going to come down, or is that one going to go up? I don't know. First, I was thinking it was going to go up. But. Hmm. It's going to spin. It's going to spin. Huh? <laughs> it doesn't look to me like it's going to do a darn thing. No, it's Actually, not. <laughs> it takes a lot of heat to change the temperature of that, mm -hmm. that much water. Yeah. And that's why these respond very slow to a temperature change, but temperature change does work. And it's an interesting way to measure it. You know, thermometers are something we kind of take for, for granted. Uh, it's so easy nowadays to measure temperature. Uh, some people have invented thermometers, and, and they're really kind of important in science, aren't they? Um, can you think of any way that we could make a thermometer? With what substance? Yeah, with, with a substance, any kind of a thermometer. How could we make a thermometer? How could we measure temperature? They used to make mercury thermometers. All right, how did a, they don't make them anymore? I don't know. How does a mercury <laughs> thermometer work? Tell me. You're almost out of time. <laughs> <laughs> you explain it so well, though. It's interesting that we really had to rely pretty much mm -hmm. on a liquid thermometer. Some would have a red solution in them yeah. that I think was actually alcohol with a dye in most mm -hmm. cases. Others were metallic-looking liquid, which was mercury. And the mercury if it had a little bulb at the bottom, and if you squoze it and it got warmer, it would push the mercury up and you'd mm -hmm. take a reading and, and actually that put them under your tongue and see. Unless they had long had ends. Earth, yeah, <laughs> right. But uh, there's other ways to measure temperature that I think are kind of interesting. I'd like to say a little bit about today. Uh, you know, we, we had some pretty neat science fair projects and we, we showed those just a couple weeks ago. But now we're getting ready for the next science fair. And we're looking for things that we can invent and do that will give us answers to questions or even maybe give us opportunities. Wouldn't it be amazing if this year out of our science fair some new products were to be invented that could then become commercialized? That'd be pretty neat. So when you're trying to do something like measure temperature, <clears throat> you need to know about the properties of, of different materials. In this case, we learned about buoyancy from Tobias today and his uh, ketchup. <laughs> and by the way, ketchup is amazing, isn't it? Do you know what they call that red gold? Yeah. <laughs> and Heinz is the number one ketchup producer in, in the world. It's kind of fascinating. 
Well, uh, here we have these little buoyancy devices which we can use to me measure temperature. It's kind of slow. Uh, there's actually a few problems with these. But there's another way that you can measure temperature that is really kind of fascinating. If you take a piece of wire, not copper wire, not aluminum wire, but a, chrome, a, a wire made out of chrome, you've seen chrome plating on the bumper of cars, it's all shiny, and it's a very thin layer of a metal called chrome, or chromium. And then if you take another wire that happens to be made out of an alloy of nickel that we call Inconel, if you took those two pieces of wire and just twisted them together, something interesting would happen. You would have what's called a thermocouple. Just this piece of wire, that piece of wire, and you wrap them together, twist them together, and you have a thermocouple. A thermocouple being two dissimilar metals will actually create a very, very, very small voltage. And you can measure that voltage with a voltmeter. It's actually like a little battery. Interesting thing is the amount of voltage that comes out of a thermocouple depends on what temperature it is. So you could actually hook them up to a voltmeter and then you could see what voltage you get and then you could see what temperature it is and you could calibrate it. And if you calibrate it at a few different voltages and make a table, you could say if it's 1.72 volts, well then it's 72 degrees, and you could actually be able to read them. And that's what scientists do. We use thermocouples an awful lot in experiments to be able to find out what the temperature is. And there's a few different popular ones. Some of them are in long stainless steel tubes with a connector and you stick it into an experiment, which is kind of a neat way to be able to measure temperatures. There's another one that I like. Remember, that's a thermocouple, two dissimilar metals. And by the way, by choosing the right metals, you can choose what temperature range they're sensitive in. But there's another way to do it, and that is with a technology called a thermistor. Thermal, of course, being to do with temperature, and ister having to do with resistor, mm -hmm. right? And a thermistor is a device that doesn't create voltage like a battery, but if you try to push a voltage through it, the resistance changes with temperature. And thermistors are one of my favorites. You can get a thermistor for like 20 cents, and you, can, you have to put a voltage through it. So you hook it up to a battery, and then you see how much current will flow through it or what the resistance is, and you can measure all sorts of temperatures with thermistors. Very, very inexpensive way to instrument a lot of things. Um, so I have a hot tub. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, I, I like hot tubs. And I have the kind of hot tub that you, know, you have to fill every time you use it. Uh, I had a hot tub before, and we hooked it up, and I'd say, oh, you know what? Today is the perfect day for a hot tub. So I'm going to go fill it. So I go turn on the water, and I fixed up, fixed up a little gizmo that would measure the temperature. It happened to be a thermistor on a little display, so I could adjust the temperature just right, and it would start to fill, and then it would start to fill, and then it would be just starting to fill, and then, you know, like 
By the time it got three-fourths full, I didn't feel like a hot tub anymore. <laughs> and it was still filling. And if you turned it on before it was full, you know how it sprays out the water? And if it's not covered with water, the sprayers go all over the room. <laughs> and uh, so quite often, before it got full, I had to go to a phone call or a meeting or something. And so in my last place, I thought, hmm, just will not have this tub. <laughs> so then I was building my new place. And I thought, I'm not going to make that same mistake again. So in my new place, I put two great big water heaters. And then I put two great big plastic pipes to connect from the water heaters to the tub. And I got to the tub and I thought, now where's the water going to come out? There's a little place for a faucet to fill up, but those, those take forever to fill a tub. So I thought, and I thought, now in a hot tub, you guys have probably seen these, but for those of you that haven't, they have these nozzles where you turn on the jacuzzi pump. By the way, jacuzzi is the name of a guy that kind of invented this. But you turn on the pump, and water sprays out through the nozzles. But to keep spraying out, it has to go back. So it goes back through a, a big outlet on the bottom where the water goes in, goes back to the pump, and then it goes shooting back out the nozzles. And it gives you kind of a massage effect, OK? Well, I got thinking, you know that big uh, drain on the bottom that goes to feed the recirculation system. What if I were to plumb into there? Because it's huge. And I got these two great big pipes so I could turn it on. I could fill that thing up in a minute. It'd be like, <laughs> and so I did. I went in, I cut the drain pipe, and I put in a T. And then I brought these two big pipes, and, and I had some help. Thank you, guys. And we hooked up these two pipes, and then I just needed a way to turn it on. And so I had to build a circuit, and I did. I built a circuit, and I've got a, a display that tells you what temperature it is, and I've got little buttons and lights to tell you what's on. And one. And then I even printed a little label and put it behind some plexiglass fancy mounted on the wall. And it says, fill. And if you push the fill button, it lights up around the button with green light, meaning it's filling. And water just comes shooting in the drain. It's awesome. <laughs> just like that. It's really full. And I did not achieve my design goal of a one minute fill. It takes about 80 seconds. <laughs> but that's pretty fast. It is really fast. And you know, when I got this thing, and I got it fixed so it comes out at the perfect temperature. Perfect temperature. I had to try it a few times to decide what I thought was perfect. But when I got it just perfect, and by the way, my perfect temperature is 102. <laughs> that's good information no, right it's there. Just that, oh, that's just right. Well, anyway, I was filling it. And I was watching it one day, and it just come boiling out of there. And I thought, what if something goes wrong and the circuit I built doesn't turn off? Because there's no, there's no valve. There's just this button on the wall. And what if it starts to get full and, and it doesn't shut off? Uh, what do I do? And they have a little overflow thing. If it gets too full, it overflows. But it would never keep up with that flow. I can just say, going up over. Um, and that, that would not be neat. So what did you do? 
Yeah, so I'm still worrying about this. <laughs> but you know, that's the way technology invention works. You get an idea, you do it, you learn from it, and you get another idea, you find out a problem, and you do it. And, and that's what I really hope happens with the science fair. I hope we get a lot of really neat ideas. So I'm going to keep worrying about how to make sure my thing doesn't overfill, but I did put a safety on it. I went in and drilled a hole in the tub. By the way, if you drill a hole in your tub, it's probably going to leak. <laughs> but I put a stainless steel bolt through it, and then I put a gasket around it so it wouldn't leak, and then I put a screw on the back, and I put a wire to that, and that if it gets that high, it shuts off the whole solenoid system. And I made the solenoids that open when I turn it on, so if there's no power, they shut off. So what's a solenoid? A solenoid. I don't know. You do? It's, it's something like a humanoid. Oh. Okay. But uh, a solenoid yeah. is, is something that every student should know about because you'll be able to use them in your projects. Yeah, we don't know. You're, you're here to give me a hard time, aren't you? I'm here to answer questions. It's good to have a person giving hard times. Dance. Okay. What if you had a magnet? Uh-huh. You have a magnet. Okay. What if yes, you had a magnet and it was hooked to a soft piece of rubber so you could open and close a valve. And if it's open, the water comes through, and if you close it, the water shuts off. And then, what if you put a spring on it so it held it closed? But then, what if you wrapped a wire around it and made an electrical coil so that when you hook the coil up to electricity, it made an electromagnet, and it pulled the magnet away from the valve and let the water flow? That would be a solenoid. It's a valve, on-off valve for water or gas or something that is controlled by electricity, which makes a magnetic field that pulls it open and closed. And I love solenoids. Cool. Solenoids have been a very big part of my experimental life. I do a lot of things with solenoids. And in this case, I have two big ones. I want big ones so they have a, how big the hole is that the water goes through in a solenoid is called the orifice. And the bigger the orifice, the more water can flow through and faster. And mine have great big orifices. <sighs> and when they turn on and, and the magnets get power, you hear it go, tunk. <laughs> and then you know it's filling up. And it's, it's I excitement. probably overdid it. But, mm -hmm. and, and the panel, by the way, has a lot of other features, too. It's really pretty. <laughs> Monitors the temperature, it controls it. I have so much fun filling that sometimes I just fill it just for the fun. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's really a good thing. Well, now, let's see. We were back in another story. Can we go back into the story now? Mm -hmm. What was the story about? <laughs> okay, well, we want to thank all of you for tuning in tonight. <laughs> it's it's going to be a real good night, isn't it? They want to know where they can get a thermistor, though. Okay, well, they want to know about a thermistor. Thermistors are easy to buy. Yeah. You can buy them online on a lot of places. Just Google thermistor, go on Amazon thermistor. They're all over. They're very, very inexpensive. And remember, a thermistor is a little teeny probe with two wires sticking out that changes resistance depending on temperature. So if you hook up one side to a battery, the other side to a voltmeter, you get a voltmeter for $10 online too. Mm -hmm. And then ground the other side to the other side of the, you can see that as you touch it, the resistance will change. Right. 
And if you want to try a thermocouple, thermocouples are kind of fun to make. All you need is two different kinds of metal, twist them together. Some give you a bigger voltage than others, but it's like a little battery, and the voltage changes with temperature. And it's neat to learn about those things. Every time you learn about a thing that has properties, then you have power to do something. But if we have now completed the solenoid interrogation, I'd like to go forward with my story. So I've been working on a project, and I have some very, very good news to report tonight. Um, by the way, John, did you bring the uh, results on the einkorn wheat testing? All right, well, you get them for us because some of the people want to hear the einkorn wheat. You know, we had a harvest. We got some. We got a bunch. We cleaned up some of the wheat, and we shipped it out to the laboratory to find out what are the food properties. Uh, we want to have a wheat that is very high in fiber because fiber is very good for you, and we got the the test results back and I'd like to report that. But first, here's my project. We've been working on a project to grow plants, to grow tomatoes, to grow food, make your own ketchup, your own submarines, <laughs> indoors. Being able to grow indoors with artificial lighting or with LED lighting is the goal. And as you know, we've been doing experiments. Uh, a few months ago, I took you on a tour of one of the greenhouses where we were trying to make the astaxanthin. Did you get it? All right, you're going to come over here to the mic, and you can oh. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of you met John Thomas, but this would be a great time meeting. John, say hello. Hello. Here he is. OK, that's him. Now, John, you have some test results on the einkorn wheat that we just grew. Mm -hmm. Tell us what we got. Well, we have protein. and. These are based on a 100-gram sample. So uh, for protein, we have 14.66 grams. We have fat. Ooh. Yeah. Don't report that. Oh. <laughs> Skipping along. <laughs> uh, total fat, we have 3.55 grams. Uh, for fiber, we have a total of 13.5 grams. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a ton of fiber. Fiber is something that we really need to add to our diets. And some bread has some, some has less, some has almost none. I think the fiber is very important. Mm -hmm. yeah. Total sugar is 1.45 grams. So a little bit of sugar, natural sugar, mm -hmm. and the fiber kind of... Uh, countermands that right. as far as, yeah, that's perfect, okay. Calcium, we have 36.2 milligrams. Iron, we have 5.9 milligrams. Potassium, we have 500 milligrams. And sodium, we have 1.25 milligrams. And then our vemotoxin is 0.1. I don't even know what that is. No, I don't. <laughs> All right, thank you, John. So the good news is, and the thing I really wanted to know, will we have very much fiber with this wheat? And I really think fiber is one of the biggest missing things in our, our regular American diet. So hopefully this will, will make a difference. I have been enjoying the new einkorn bread. I even tried some of the cinnamon rolls this week, and, and it's really good. Uh, it, and it makes you feel good. Remember, einkorn 
has the property of being the old, 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 old ancient wheat that was used thousands of years ago on this earth. And it seems to be handled very well by our bodies. A lot of the more modern wheats, which are better for drought and easier to grow in other places, etc., have been hybrid to the point that they seem to be making a lot more people have allergic reactions to the gluten. And uh, we're starting to get samples of this new wheat out to people, and I'm, I'm going to be very interested to get feedback on whether they do better with this wheat than the other. But thank you very much for that. All right, back now to my project. We've been wanting to develop a system for growing plants indoors. And many uh, of our cities are starting to offer a very low price on electricity as long as you use it between midnight and 6 a.m. <laughs> and the reason they do that is because they're generating power and everybody goes to bed and nobody buys it, so it's wasted. So they figure if they can get you to do things at night, that would be great. Well, what better thing to do than have some lights go on down in your basement or in a closet or in a shed somewhere and grow tomatoes and lettuce and healthy food at these very, very low prices. And of course, the LED lights are extremely efficient. We've been working on an LED system. We've built lights. Uh, we build them on our automated pick and place machine. But uh, I set a goal of being able to get the price of the lights down to 20 cents a watt because I want to make it affordable for everybody. I really think it'd be fun if we could develop a growing system that everybody could do like that. And you could have healthy herbs and tomatoes, tomatoes, and Heinz ketchup, and all these things all year long. Well, the, the going price for these LED lights is about 50 cents a watt. And that, I think, makes it a little bit prohibitive for most people. And so that means if you would pay $100, you can get about a 200-watt light. And uh, that capital investment is going to be prohibitive. Well, last night uh, we were doing the calculations on the newest lights, and they came out to 5.7 cents per watt, wow. which is like one-fifth of what, what my goal was. And I think it's going to make it affordable for everybody. So we are now ready to roll forward with the next phase of this, which will be to build our first big indoor greenhouse under uh, completely out of touch with the light, completely indoors. And if this works, well, then anybody that has any space anywhere would be able to grow food. And the nice thing about these indoor gardens is you don't need to worry about bugs. You don't need to worry about weeds, and uh, you don't need to worry about it being cold outside. You can grow year-round, and if we can make it so it's affordable, if you can use that off-peak power, it'd be really, really a neat thing, won't it? Yeah. So uh, there's a, a very interesting piece of research that came out within the last month about indoor gardens. Uh, and this, this research has to do with which color of light works the best for gr growing plants. Uh, photosynthesis is the name that uh, 
we give to the process of plants capturing light and turn it into food. Uh, photo meaning having to do with light and synthesis means you synthesize something. The process of photosynthesis takes uh, carbon dioxide which is in the air. Remember carbon dioxide is a carbon with two oxygens. It's the fizz in soda pop. It's also what we breathe out. We breathe in air which is 19% oxygen and then we breathe out CO2, which is the oxygen that's reacted with carbon in our, in our cells. But CO2 builds up a little bit in the environment, and as the CO2 floats around the world, you know, if we build up too much CO2, we'd be in real trouble. But the, one of the miraculous things that nature does is the plants grab the CO2, and then with the power of energy from sunlight, they connect the CO2, pull off the oxygen, give free oxygen for us to breathe again, and they turn it into a hydrocarbon. They connect it with hydrogen and turn it into plant material or into tomatoes or, or into roots, uh, which is one of the real miraculous cycles of our world and the reason that we always have oxygen because we keep breathing it. You know, how long before we're going to breathe it all? And we don't just breathe it with our lungs, we also breathe it with our automobiles and our airplanes. They're all pulling oxygen out of the air, and we would run out if it wasn't for the lungs of the earth, which are the forests. And also, we get a tremendous amount of oxygen from the algae that grows in the ocean, these algae blooms. They pull the CO2 out of the air and replace with oxygen, so it's really a good and a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yes. Well, coming back to our little greenhouses then, so what we're doing is we're pulling the uh, CO2 out of the air and we're putting back out oxygen, which is a real good thing to have in our homes, the fresh oxygen and in the air. But uh, the energy of the light is going into food, which we then can eat. And I believe that... Uh, the old saying is very true, which says that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So if you just prevent, for example, illness a little bit, it's a lot better than trying to cure it after it got away from you. So how do you prevent illness? Well, you take care of your health. You eat well, you eat properly. Given our bodies, the nutrition that we need is very important. You exercise and get rest. And those are the real secrets to having your best health. So uh, <clears throat> we've become a society where pretty much everything we eat either comes from the restaurant, from the fast food place, or from the grocery store. And there's very, very little food that we actually produce ourselves. Uh, not too many of us have our own gardens anymore. I say anymore. I can remember growing up winning the garden. <laughs> but uh, it, it is a, a good thing to be able to produce this fresh food. Most of our food today is actually produced far from where we, we live or from where we eat it, and it has to be shipped long distances. And so very often they have to do something to keep the food from rotting. 
as it travels to us. And sometimes the things that they're doing to keep the food from rotting are applying chemicals that maybe aren't so good for our health. And sometimes it's hard to know which one of these are going to be good for us, which ones can be very devastating. And you get too much of these things that prevent growth, bacteria, then maybe it's going to prevent our growth. So I love lots and lots of fresh, healthy food. And you know, um, if we could learn to eat better, we will be a healthier society. And more important than that, well, I won't say more important, but also important is the fact that when we're healthier, we feel better. And so eating properly, exercising, we're well worth it. And Peugeot's over there nodding because I know she's getting ready to say that we need to exercise our brains too. Go ahead, Sam. <laughs> we do need to exercise our brains. Yeah, it's just like I said. <laughs> I you predicted can read my that. Mind. Didn't Did you read my mind? I, that was more mind control. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so it's very, very exciting. Uh, so we'll be setting up the next phase of the gardens, the indoor gardens with the LED lighting. And a five cents, well, 5.7 cents is going to be something that everybody can afford. So if, if you think about that, um, for a couple dollars, you can put in enough light to start growing some plants. And I think that's really, really a breakthrough. And then with this off-peak power becoming available, which I think more and more cities are doing, we're going to be able to afford this. And, you know, um, tomatoes that are grown on the vine until they get almost ready to start turning red and ripening. But while they're still green, they're picked off, put in a box, put in a truck so they can drive for three days to get to the supermarket. And then you buy them, you take them home, and, and, and they finally ripened in the truck. They don't taste the same. I mean, thank goodness for them. I had a lot of those truck ripened tomatoes because that's usually all we can get. But when the tomatoes are ripened on the vine and they're fresh and you say, I would like a tomato, and you go and you pick it, it tastes so much better. And the same with cucumbers and lettuce and all the other wonderful things. So it's exciting. It's very exciting. So we have some kids wondering um, when we're going to hear more about Tobler. When are we going to hear more about Tobler? Yeah. Well, we actually have a student team now working on Tobler, don't we? Yeah. And I'm very pleased to report that uh, they have a uh, Tobler app almost mm -hmm. ready to release in the App Store. And it's wow. going to be free. And uh, we also have a Tobler book, which you'll be able to see on the app. Mm -hmm. You can turn it. Oh. Uh, the only thing that they're waiting for is for Mr. Beak. Mr. Beak. Mr. Beak to read the book. So it'll be a book that you can read in the app, but also if you want to, you can turn on the sound and you can hear Mr. Beak reading it. Well, how fun. Yeah, remember in, in the Tobler world, there's a bear named Tobler. Uh -huh. There is a sweet little gal named Smelly Lips. That's right. Mm -hmm. She's a little cute darling pig. And then <laughs> there's a chicken with long hairy legs called Beak, right? Right. And um, 
everybody is trying to figure out who is Mr. Beak. Now, that, that's not the chicken beak. Mm -hmm. Mr. Beak is said to be the person that told these stories originally. Really? Yeah. And, uh, his, I didn't we, know that. No one knows who he is. <laughs> <laughs> but this, because some of these stories are kind of edgy. I didn't know that. Yeah, and I'm just glad. I mean, I had nothing to do with it because really? I don't know some of the parents may wonder <clears throat> where this rascal side of me came from. <laughs> so it's Mr. Beak. Mr. Beak. Okay, yeah, Mr. Beak. Uh -huh. And he is the author of the, the Tober book. But um, we have about, what, 35 stories mm -hmm. now. And yeah. we're going to release them one at a time on the app because... Uh, we're going through, the, these stories were not uh, recorded in a fancy recording studio. They were recorded out in the wild. In the wild. Yeah, and you should hear it. It sounds wild. Uh, these were uh, recorded in front of a live audience. <laughs> well, that makes it more fun. Oh, they really sound like it, too. You'll definitely hear the audience. And uh, <clears throat> so we'll start putting them out. Um, it's, it's interesting because, uh, Mr. Beak told me, uh, or that's not quite accurate. Anyway, I heard, <laughs> I heard that Mr. Beak says that every one of these stories was told with a specific, specific goal or objective in mind of attacking some issue like the importance of being honest, the importance of being kind and not doing mean teas or uh, all little points like that. Mm -hmm. And it'll be real interesting to see uh, how people respond to them. We, we really need to spend more time thinking about our lives and what we're becoming. And we have the power to mold so much of our attitude. Some of the things that happen in our lives we can't control but we can always control how we respond to the things that happen, both good and bad. And everybody's going to get both good and bad. And the happy people in life are the ones that respond well. And the ones that are always feeling sorry for themselves are the unhappy ones. And I'm hoping that these uh, Beak stories, uh, excuse me, these Tobler stories with Beak are going to be something that helps people find some of the better portions in life and anyway how fun so there's something to look forward to well yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm just oh, good. i'm just a tiny morsel scared about it because <laughs> some of them are really hmm. well i'm sure we'll get feedback mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah this this is probably one of the most courageous things i've ever done so this we'll we'll see how true. it goes I, I had no, I mean, Mr. Beak had no uh -huh. intention that these were ever going to be made live. And uh, we'll see how that goes. I thought about heavily censoring them, mm -hmm. but I think they would lose their punch if I did. Yeah. Well, well, so, a lot so we'll of life's see. not censored. So. Yeah. One of the nice things about a solace and Science Live and so forth is... Uh, I, I will sometimes say something that I think is a perfectly sensible thing to say, and then after we finish the broadcast, I get some feedback. Yeah. 
And I realize that in certain points of view or perspectives, it comes across a little different than I was intending. So I think we'll have something to learn about Tobler as we tell the stories. But they are intense, and they do seem to hold the kids' attention. And they're fun. And if they don't upset the parents too much, <laughs> it'll be good. Well, fair warning. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to PGA 99 or something. <laughs> okay, well, I want to thank everyone for, for joining us today. It's really wonderful to have you here. School is starting, mm -hmm. and this is a, a really exciting time for Acellus. Uh, there are so many new surprises in Acellus this year, a lot of new features and a lot of new features coming. Wow. So enjoy, study hard, learn. Remember, everything you learn will be with you for your whole life. And knowledge is power. You can make a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.